Hello, everyone, and um, welcome back to the official podcast for Crime Scene by Esther McKay. My name is Rob, and I'm joined once again by Esther. Hi, Rob. How's it going? Good, thanks. That's good. Um, just wanted to have a quick shout out to everyone who um, listened to our first episode and gave us feedback. And um, yeah, we just want to say we really appreciated all the lovely comments. And we hope you continue to enjoy the episodes. So this episode, uh, uh, we decided we we're going to do four chapters, um, just because I think, like the first three, um, these four really encapsulate a period of your life, um, which um, for me was kind of it's like a bit of a limbo. Mm. Um. Just in terms of like your career and your life, like it felt like you were sort of between advancing in your police career um, and starting off. So you didn't have that um, naivety like when you started and you'd found your feet. But mm. but I still wasn't quite sure where I was going and I was trying to get into scientific but there was quite a few roadblocks in the way and it was not easy to navigate it. Yeah. So I wasn't quite sure if I was actually going to make my way into the area that I wanted to, to, to get myself into. So it was, yeah, it was a bit like limbo. It's a good way to, to describe it. Mm. I feel like um, these are really important chapters too because it's sort of like it sets you up for your life in forensics and in scientific, mm. um, even though maybe at the time it didn't really seem like that. Yeah. Well, I think it showed how determined I was to actually move into that area of policing and I didn't give up and I think if I had have not been so um you know interested in doing that area and really pushing for it that I may have just gone on a different road Mm, yeah definitely um so yeah so the the chapters we're going to do are um there's a whale in the bay uh secondary training pogo men and evil spirits um relieve and assist and macquarie fields Mm mm-hmm um, so in There's a Whale in the Bay, I, I, I uh, really enjoyed like the start of that chapter where you talk about um, the cow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It showed the diversity of the work yeah, we did. Yeah, 100%. Like it's like, you know, um, we finish on Father's Day, which is such a harrowing mm. um, event that took place. And then, you know, it's like it's back into the job, you know, here's another crazy thing we have to deal with as well as that stuff. Yeah, and it was interesting that I was with Roger again. Yeah. And we'd already formed that that close bond because of that weekend that we worked together on Father's Day. And um, here we were again in a different scenario, but um, equally as critical and distressing to get the job done properly because there could have been another serious accident happened if we hadn't have um, resolved it. And, and of course, me being the probationary constable, I, I just sort of stood back and Roger took control. Mm. And um, it was just it, it was just sort of really harrowing because I love animals, all sorts of animals. That's sort of something that struck me, even though it was like, you know, um, semi-mundane in comparison. The aspect of having to deal with an animal like that in distress mm. is... It's it's sort of it's a traumatizing event in itself. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. It was sad. And but but by the same token, you've got to be professional. And you've got to get the job done. Mm. So 
Um, I can still remember really so clearly, Roger, going into the ready stance because when you're at the academy, you're trained how to use your firearm and there's a certain stance that you take. And he took that stance exactly to the book. Right. Um, and that's the first thing I saw. He had, he had the gun straight out in front at the ready position and this cow was running all over the place. So every time he'd get into a spot ready to shoot it, it would it would look him in the eye and literally run away because it, yeah. it, it was weird how its instincts came out and actually knew something was going to happen. And it was just like, oh, my God, it's run off again. He'd try again. And, and then, of course, he finally did shoot it and he got it in the nostril, which... Yeah, that's oh, like, oh, no. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was terrible. It was like, oh, my God, and the blood was pouring out because the animal was in pain and, and it was just ramping it up another level. Mm. Yeah, and then, I, like, it's just, yeah, it's not really something you consider. Like, I remember uh, I was driving in Camden couple of years ago and there was a horse on the road mm. and it actually just it sends everyone into it's like chaos mm. because no one knows what to do and the first person you think to call are the police but yeah you don't realize that it's not really something they're particularly trained for either <laughs> well, funnily you know? enough you're not yeah there's no training at the academy about how to herd yeah. wild animals yeah <laughs> or how to shoot something that's running around trying to avoid you know you, you actually connecting with it and then at the same time trying to direct traffic, stop people from driving through the scene and and, and the, the cow was just careering through the wire fence. I mean, it, it, it nothing stopped it. It didn't matter what was in front of it. It was just careering out of control. So had it got back onto the road, it would have hit a car. Yeah, exactly. Another and that's car. pretty serious by that stage if, yeah. if something like that happens. Um, so another thing I just wanted to ask you about this stage of your career how quickly did you have that um, like affinity for the scientific? It was it was fairly soon. Um, I hadn't really thought too much about it until I went to secondary training, mm-hmm. and that was a year after I'd um, joined the police. You go back for um, I think from memory it was about four weeks training. I, I can't really remember exactly how long it was, but you go back and you have to do your secondary before you actually become confirmed as a constable. And um, they had all these lecturers come in. And one of the lecturers that came in was from the scientific investigation section and he put these photographs up on this huge screen in, in the um, main auditorium at the academy and they were the most horrific photos of dead bodies you've ever seen. And I, I immediately found it really interesting and fascinating. So I was really concentrating on what this guy was talking about and he, he was talking about this one murder um, where this guy had been hit with a tomahawk and um, he was showing the wound and and the body and the scene and all that sort of stuff. And it was a series of photos that got closer and closer and then all of a sudden the last photo was the tomahawk sitting in the actual wound to, to show that that was the, the murder weapon. And um, we were all sitting there horrified looking at it and he walked up and he cupped his hands around his mouth and he yelled out, Hello! <laughs> Into this ear, which was, it was just like a screen with a big ear. <laughs> Yeah. And it, it just cracked everybody up. <laughs> that's just like, because um, obviously like that's in the book as well. And when I read that, I'm like, this is such a weird world that these people <laughs> live in. Like it's a bit sadistic almost like this yeah. humour that you guys have. Yeah, that that was probably the first time I really identified with the black humour. Right, yeah. And, um, and I just thought it was fascinating and I decided then, I decided then I was going to do it. And I think 
one of the reasons was I had the fascination for the science and I was also looking for something that was behind the scenes work because I knew that frontline policing wasn't really for me as much as I, I didn't dislike it. You were out in all weathers, you know, you never knew what was going to happen. Um, mm. It was tough, it was rough, it was dirty. Well, uh, you talk about the house with the, the poo smeared. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, and disgusting. Yeah. You know, you, one minute you're out on the road shooting a cow, the next minute you're getting called to a break and enter and to your horror you walk into the house and see kids sitting on a lounge eating fish and chips whilst there's poo smeared all over the walls yeah. and one of them just crawls through it with the fish oh, in its hands oh and pops no. it in its mouth. Yeah. And you're supposed to not react. Mm. So, yeah, I think I, I really – I became very disillusioned as well because we were in and out of the housing commission areas in the general area um, more than we were in any other area and it's tough living and people are – it's high crime, you know, people mm. are struggling – um, children are often left alone and uncared for, and you know there, there's some you know wonderful people that live in those areas, but um, it's it's tough for them all. And mm. you you sort of get to the point where you don't really want to be in those houses day in day out and see that misery mm-hmm. because there's not a lot you can do about it. Yeah, you're in a bit of a difficult position in that regard. Yeah, um, because you're there to serve the people, but I guess the question comes up like, are you really helping them? In some cases, yeah. you know. Well, most of the time you, you're in there for, to do an arrest yeah, or to take a child, you know, um, from an abusive family or uh, investigating um, a part of a sexual assault or child abuse or, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all very negative. And I think with the, the guy from scientific lecturing, he put a bit of humour into it um, and I could see some light and shade. Yeah which at the time probably didn't really resound with me exactly what it was that I was seeing, but I think I could see that there was um, something a little bit different about this area because whilst I was at the academy doing secondary, I was also considering going into internal affairs, which is interesting in itself because Mm. I didn't fully understand what that really meant, that I would actually be investigating my colleagues. Yeah. um, Because I felt that the people that I was working with, I couldn't see them in that light because we were all pretty close and, and pretty strong team. But the reality was that there are, there's bad eggs in, in every organisation. And mm. when I think about the reasons why I was considering internal affairs, it was because of my strong sense of justice. Mm. And even in a policing environment, there is always going to be cops that will do the wrong thing. Well, police are human beings as mm. well. So there's, there's always going to be that spectrum, as you say, of good and bad cops. It's, it's just... You know how it yeah. is, yeah. yeah. And and uh, and I think I would have been equally as um, professional in that role had I got into internal affairs. But it would have been a different uh, path because I would have had to have done the detectives course and more investigative. You know, taking statements and um, research. Feels like that would be more isolated too than something like um, scientific. Well, what I found out later was that that area was very much a standalone unit Mm. and you're right, uh, they didn't mix with the mainstream because they were looked at with suspicion. Well, yeah, people wouldn't trust you um, because they'd probably feel like they're always being investigated, I guess. Yeah, Yeah. that's that's so true. And although later in my career I met 
cops that had gone through the ranks and and funnily enough really going into that area helps you with your career path right um it seems to be that way that and it was my experience at the time that if people had worked in that area that there was um an easier road to getting into perhaps um, being considered for promotion. I'm not saying that, that they would have just automatically got it because they obviously had to, to prove their worth. But um, if you look at traditionally in the ranks in those days, it may not be the same now, but there was a lot of police that went through the ranks that had actually had a tenure in internal affairs. Right. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, th- I mean, that's interesting because like these chapters kind of um, introduce the politics in the police too, I think, mm. in terms of um, just maybe more the realistic way that the system works in terms of promotion and getting into certain areas. Like um, even the process you had to go through waiting to get into scientific at all seemed like it was pretty based in, you know, politics. The um, more experienced police officers were getting the promotions first and then... Um, you got moved to the Bureau of Crime Intelligence? Yeah, yeah. Well, that I mean, that happened um, before I'd sort of voiced a desire to go to scientific because when I came back from secondary training, the induction sergeant called me in and said, look, you know, you've, you've done really well. You've, all of your um, assessments have come back really high standard and we'd like to um, – send you somewhere that you would prefer to go to be, right. just just to, you know, um, reward you for the hard work you've put in and where would you like to go? And I said, well, I'd really like to go to a smaller station, maybe Camden or Picton because it was closer to my home. And I, I like the idea of a small team yeah, as well and, and that sort of more rural policing. It would have been away from the larger area of Campbelltown where they had the predominant housing commission estates there, so more rural rural um, policing. And um, and that was all agreed upon, and I was I was I was told that I would be sent to either one of those smaller stations, and then of course one of the other female officers in the um, station got into a bit of trouble, mm. um, was disliked by a lot of people, rightly or wrongly, because she was very vocal, right. and um, she used to say her mind if she felt that something wasn't right, and there was probably a bit of bullying going on there too um, with her, and and uh, she did something that. Um, wasn't looked upon as being the right thing and um, they gave her my transfer. And yeah. so I just got this call um, one night from the commander saying, and it was unusual that he rang me himself as well. Um, yeah. I still can't even work out why he did that. But there was a message at the station at Macquarie Fields when I'd been working there um, saying that, you need to call the commander. And I, I, no, it wasn't you need to call the commander. It, it was a message. He right. left the message and I called him. Okay. And when I called him, he was um, very annoyed. How dare I? He actually said it was insubordination. <laughs> really? Because I dared call him and ask why I was being transferred to the BCI. Because the Bureau of Crime Intelligence was a, a desk job. Yeah. And it was nothing that I was interested in whatsoever. And I'd never shown any desire to go into that role. And I was, I was completely shocked at why they would choose me for it. And he just said, I've decided that you'll be going to that role and that's, that's it. You'll, you, you. And it wasn't until a bit later on that I found out the real reason why that the other female officer had been earmarked for it because she wasn't particularly liked. 
when you get that call that you're being moved to a you know a, a branch of policing that you really have no desire to do like what what are your thoughts do you go like um does it change your whole perspective on what your career is going to be like do you think this is going to be like you know what if i get stuck in this it's like a punishment like i yeah. I, I felt i was being punished for something i hadn't done but I'm a pretty positive person and I decided what I said to myself was, okay, this is not ideal, but I'm working in the detective's office. Um, I'll be learning a new skill. I'll be able to see what work they're doing in there and I'll just learn from it. And I I never thought I was going to be stuck there. I always thought there was going to be an exit strategy, but I didn't know what it was at that point. But I felt that I would somehow be able to extricate myself from that job at some stage. That's like a pretty amazing attitude to go into it with. Um, you know, to stay positive in that regard. Yeah, I think I was still a bit naive in those days as to the way you could be bullied and treated badly mm. if someone took a disliking to you. Uh, and I still felt the world, you know, the world was open to me and there were opportunities available. And, you know, I got on with everybody and um, and I hadn't really started my quest to move into scientific at that point. I hadn't really looked into how that was going to work exactly. So, um, you know, as it worked out, it turned into be a good thing because I got the experience of working in there. Um, and then I was approached by the sergeant of um, the newly formed foot patrol and he asked me did I want to come to that because I had a good, good reputation of being a good worker. Yeah. And he promised that he – I said I would come to that area and do that work as long as it was going to be temporary and he could help me get – into scientific and he said he would so it ended up being a good yeah so like one of those like meant to be situations yeah which actually goes through this whole uh these four chapters as well i think like there's a real sense of like um you know uh it's it's all meant to be everything's falling into place even though it doesn't really make any sense at the time Mm. um because i think for me, it seemed like the foot patrol was a really important uh, stepping stone on the way to scientific as well, just in sort of um, showing you another aspect of policing. Yeah, um, it, it did actually because community policing was all the go then. Um, it was a small team and the team got on really well and it also gave me autonomy because when you were working with a partner, you were out, you really had to make those split-second decisions right there on your feet. You didn't have support back up with other things. You really had to just make the decision. Um, Physically, I was extremely fit because we were walking Mm. in excess of 10 Ks per day. And I used to go into all of the uh, local shops and got to know all the shopkeepers. And again, it was another, probably another skill that I learned um, of how to talk to people on different levels. Yeah. And like uh, that community policing as well. Mm. I think probably became really important for you, um, like skipping ahead, but when you went back to general duties um, again, um, was it in Macfields? Yeah. Yeah. And then you you were really a part of that community. You knew people mm. and you'd see them um, sort of when you weren't working. Yeah. And it's like that's where I think it probably was really handy to have that experience in foot patrol. Yeah, it was. And and at that time, we were also seeing a uh, massive change in, in policing because uh, positional promotion 
was um, replaced with uh, the a different well a different um, method where you had to actually apply for positions. So you didn't just get a position once you got your rank, right? Because what the way it was, you did your constable first class exam, and then you became a senior constable, and then when your yearly term was um, at the right spot, you got offered. Well, there were roles. So if you were in with a certain crowd or a certain group or you wanted to go to detectives or it was, there would be roles offered to you as a sergeant, um, but it all changed. So you actually had to, instead of being applying for a role that was sort of offered to you because your number came up, mm. you could actually apply for the role much earlier and get it on your merit. Right. And that sounded like a great idea, but what happened was it became, it really divided colleagues because all of a sudden it became a competition to get those roles. Right. And it, it changed everything about it. There wasn't as much of the hierarchy anymore in terms of straight up. Mm. Yeah. So you did your time and then you, you moved on yeah. regardless. Um, and those people that were really ruthless would step over other people and stab them in the back and, um, you know, use, use other – one of the criteria for a sergeant's role was, you know, have you ever identified corruption? So all of a sudden they were talking about, you know, colleagues that, oh, right. that they dobbed in for something that they thought that they did with some minor indiscretion to actually fit in with that criteria of the job application. Yeah, which is terrible. It turns everyone against each other. Yeah, it was yeah. terrible. And it still is. It still happens. Right. Yeah. yeah it seems uh, weird that... Um, the system of policing almost doesn't support the, um, you know, the community and culture of of the pl- of police officers. Mm. Um, but I did get like that. You obviously were really um, putting together a, a community and culture when you were at Macquarie Fields the first time, um, with the after work debrief. Mm. Um, just I, I don't know. I just thought like. I would ask you how important that was at that stage in your career just to be able to have that release. Yeah, it was It was just part of the whole deal really. You know, um, the team that you worked on, you would often just sort of have that that drink or that debrief afterwards and, and just talk about the jobs that you'd done, especially if you had a really bad shift. Yeah. And um, it became a bit of a... Um, a tradition really and I, and I think it, it wasn't a new thing it, it, it happened for you know many years before that it was just the way it was but we all banded together and we all supported each other and there was an unwritten you know word that you would support each other in that role and um, that was a shame that when the positional promotion came in that people started to become very uh, cynical and distrusting of their colleagues if they yeah. felt that it could mean that they wouldn't get a promotion if they were wanting to get one. And that was a bit sad really and um, it did change the environment. Do you think that was in any way, because obviously they seemed to have a bit of a problem with it, uh, Was do you think it could have potentially in any way been intentional to separate people? I really don't know. Mm. I really don't know whether they even thought about it that, that deeply. Whether it just seemed like it was, um, you know, change a, a good a good change yeah. to put in, um, because we were changing as a society. But I mean, at that time, we were also um, they relaxed the height restrictions um, and the age restrictions, 
I mean, we had a fellow come to work with us who was four foot something. He wasn't even quite five foot. Right. Um, tiny, tiny guy. Um, and he was bullied, something shocking. You know, they put a mm. box behind the station desk for him to stand on so they looked taller and there was all these jokes, you know, oh, he's got a wheel on his bat and all this sort of stuff and right. everyone laughed thought it was yeah. pretty funny. Um, he got through that. Um, he's still in the job actually and – he must have had an extremely strong constitution mm. um, and a good method of dealing with it to actually get through that because I don't know whether many people would have really been able to deal with it. Well, I mean, it sort of was similar for you being a woman in the police force um, in that era, I think. Yeah, well, it was because, you know, when, when I started at Campbelltown with Sharon, we were the first two women to have been posted there for five years and they didn't want us there. They just did not want us there. So... Um, we had to prove ourselves, mm. which is a bit unfair because the males that came in in the same group didn't have to do the same thing as far as proving themselves. Yeah. And there was women that were bullied and, and played jokes with and things like that. I, I luckily wasn't one of those ones that was targeted, um, probably because I didn't react. You know, when, yeah. when they did stupid things around me, I just sort of went, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> but I didn't react and I didn't sort of carry on about it and make a big deal of it. I pretty, pretty much played it down. So that I guess if there's no reaction, there's no use doing it. Mm. Well, I mean, there's that uh, incident where you have to use the bathroom mm. um, and it just turns into this huge issue, which you end up getting in trouble in some sense. <laughs> yeah. Or... yeah. I mean, for something so simple to turn into something so negative, um, because in those days there wasn't female bathrooms and toilets in a lot of stations that they were only available in the um, administration area of the stations and if they were a small station that didn't have a big administration area they wouldn't have a female toilet at all Man. so um the administration areas were normally upstairs and that those areas were no-go zones after hours so that was the problem when i got to liverpool with the nido driver that night i wanted to use the bathroom and it was in an upstairs area that was locked and the guy on the station he probably would have had the keys, but it was just he could be bothered, you know. Just said, yeah. "Oh, we'll just use just use the men's, you know. We'll stand guard." And I just said, "Oh, okay," and I did. Um, mm. The worst part was when I actually, you know, quietly said to the guy behind the desk, "Can you tell me where the um, the toilets are?" He yelled out uh, at the top of his voice, "Oh, does anyone know how to get into the female toilets?" So that the whole station heard it. Mm. And like straight away, I was embarrassed. I thought, "Oh, for God's sake!" Like. Everyone doesn't need to know I need to go to the toilet. Well, do you think like that sort of was maybe them, you know, pulling you on a bit? Oh, it could um, have been. Yeah. yeah I, I don't know. I didn't really think too much about making it. Making a bit of a joke of it. But, but again, yeah. you sort of weren't really reacting to it. No. You just sort of like, you know. <laughs> just stood there quietly and yeah. and then they ushered me into the male toilets, which I went and used. I really didn't want to go in there, but yeah. I did. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, when the night o driver found out I'd been in there, he was really annoyed. And just said it wasn't good enough. And, and, of course, then it was an even bigger drama. Everybody knew about it then. Yeah. So I ended up being into trouble because the guys behind the desk all got into trouble because they shouldn't have told me to go into the male toilet. So then I was looked at as being some sort of troublemaker. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's a weird dynamic that sort of ends up happening in that sort of scenario. Yeah. Um, you briefly mentioned um, the full moon effect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just sort of was wondering if you had some more... Um, examples of how that played into policing, especially on those night shifts? Oh, most definitely. You know, nobody wanted to work on a full moon because we'd, we'd say the crazies are out. Yeah. And, you know, there is a phenomenon about that. 
and whether it's because it's lighter and people can actually see. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to go do a break and enter and um, they don't want to use a torch or whatever, they've got a bit more natural light to sort of guide them to where they need to be or whether it's to do with the, you know, the biorhythms or, you know, the, the energy levels or what it is, but there's definitely an energy about it and yeah. there's definitely more work on a full moon. I mean, in fact, you just go from one job to the next and it's and they're normally quite bad jobs too. Yeah, because well, people are always surprised when it's when the, you know they find out it's a real thing. Mm. You know, yeah, there is actually more crazy stuff going on when that full moon is out. <laughs> yeah, there definitely is. Um, yeah. And you talk about when you ended up at that bikey. <laughs> yeah, I was working with a guy called Andy Rachmaninoff, and um, he was a pretty strong member of the team and um, had a very funny sense of humour as well. He was a funny guy and uh, very good policeman. And we just pulled up and he just said, oh, we'll, we'll get this sorted out. So we went round the back and no no baton, no radio, um, just walked in there thinking oh. it was going to be a two-minute job. Yeah. And, of course, once we walked around the corner, and we could hear this, this, the noise, the music and stuff, but we walked around the corner and we saw that it was a bikey party and there was a lot of bikies there. And all of a sudden we were surrounded. They just slowly crept up around us and we were in the middle of this circle of bikies. And I thought to oh, myself, man. my God. Yeah, this could turn ugly. This is a bad situation, really bad situation, uh, especially for female police officers because there, there is um, certain things that bikies have in their um, rules and inductions and things about female police. So um, luckily Andy had the gift of the gab and was a pretty quick talker and used his humour. Yeah, and he, he talked us out of it. And then we, we literally backed out. We literally backed out down the driveway. <laughs> well, there's another, um, you know, we're looking at so many facets of policing. There's another one. You, you have to be able to sort of talk your way around a lot of situations with different people. It's underestimated how important that is. Yeah. Um, years ago I was doing a, uh, a shoot um, which was part of our yearly, um, you know, we, we had to be, uh, up with all of our shooting, our first aid, all that sort of stuff. So we had we had to do a, a whole series of different types of um, procedures, and one of them was going into this situation in, in the using our firearms, where we had an offender that we had to talk down, and I went into it and talked to the offender down straight away. But the team that I was with on that day, there was probably about. 10 police there, more than half of them couldn't do it. Right. And the person that was playing the offender just ran rings around them mm. and ended up being a really bad situation and they looked pretty bad, well, failed failed the actual test um, and they had to get some training around it. So it doesn't come naturally to everybody to be able to handle people that are really um, difficult. Well, they're volatile a lot yeah. of the time. And could mentally, t- it could go any way. Yeah, just with yeah. one wrong word. Yeah, 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 and it does. That's so much pressure. Yeah, um, just again, like yeah, it's you, everyone. These police officers are just people. Yeah. So to have that expectation of, you know, knowing how to psychologically analyze someone, mm. it's a massive job. And deflate a situation rather than inflame it, mm. because de-escalating an armed offender who is mentally unwell or who is on drugs or aggressive or drunk or, or whatever it is, uh, is not an easy situation and it can go either way. So there's not enough training at the academy 
in the psychology of dealing with people's personality traits. Yeah. And I was given no training in that area at all. I mean, yeah. luckily I had some common sense and, and I'm, I'm very self-aware. Mm. Um, but if you don't have that, and it's no criticism on anyone that doesn't have it because we're all different we've all got, you know, different strengths. But if you don't have it, it can mean that you really struggle in those scenarios. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And as you say, not everyone just has an ability to um, be aware of that sort of stuff. Mm. So it's definitely a challenge. Yeah. Um, something really great in this period of your policing was the, um, well, great, not great, but the Anita Cobby mm. um, yeah. case. Yeah. Um, obviously a horrific case. Yeah. But your involvement in it, to me, it was like it, it was just like good policing. It was, you know, that mm. it was the su- successes of the job. It was mm. the, the the team that were involved at all levels, from the detectives to the TRG, to you know the people um, on in the station GDs, the radio operators. It was just awesome, uh, and it was second to none the way that they handled that, and. Um, you know, getting that call that night was just such a shock to me because I was just working in the station. Yeah. And in those days we not only did we answer the telephone but we did the radio. So if a job came in, we had a handset at the uh, like a console um, where, the, where the phone was. And during the day they had a public servant that would deal with that but after hours it was done by the police. Well, I think they might still do that actually on smaller stations where they just have someone manning the phones and the radios. Well, I guess at the country's smaller country stations they would have, but mm. that might be the wife of the or the or the husband, the partner of the police officer. Yeah. Um, and I can't comment too much about it because I really don't know how they how they work that. But VKG will is really the way that it um, it's run in the metropolitan areas, and that's gone further out now. So places like Campbelltown, I would imagine, will be under VKG now. And done by a centralised uh, call centre. So yeah, so right. So VKG is like a call centre that distributes. Yeah, yeah, right. It's via King George, and I'm not sure why that it's like a how to get the message out, which is what it, they've what what the it stands for, the VKG. But um, no one really wanted to work in the station. Um, it was looked at as being a bit of a lame job. Um, well, you want to be out amongst the action. Yeah, everyone yeah. wanted to get out on the road and sort of get in the in the, the patrol car. So that particular night, I was assigned to the station, and it didn't worry me. Work, the station work didn't really worry me. I didn't really care either way. But of course, that was my role. Um, to as the calls came in, I would then get on the radio handset and then just call the cars, and um, I would just know who was busy and who wasn't, and I'd just give him the jobs. And so late into that evening, and we were all on high alert. We were all really nervy um, mm. because of the Anita Cobby murder. Everybody was feeling it. Um, we hadn't caught them and we knew that they were in our area. So everybody was quite nervy about it. And um, do, you, do you feel p- pressure too, like from the community? Like, yeah. Because you're kind of, yeah. There was a lot of pressure for us to resolve it. And when I got that call, you know, I'll never forget it. You know, it's a female voice. She said, if you want to know where the Murphy boys are, they're at 5 Tarryway Glenfield, and she hung up. Wow. And as she spoke, I wrote it down because that's what I used to do when people yeah. were on the phone. I used to just write it down immediately because a lot of those triple O calls, you don't get a second chance to get the details. Yeah, that's right. Like it would be so easy, like just for me, you know, reading it, thinking how I answer a phone, whatever, to just sort of mm. go righto and then put the phone, they hang up and you go, hang on, what did they say? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I, I just ripped the bit of paper off the notepad and walked into the sergeant's office and I said, I just took this call. 
And when I read it out to him, he just looked at me and said, that's the call we've been waiting for. Wow. He says, time, time to get a, a perimeter organised. And um, I didn't even know what a perimeter was. I didn't know anything about these major operations at that time. And uh, it was really good experience for me because I sat at the radio and listened to the whole thing. Of course, they brought a more experienced radio operator in because it was beyond my expertise. Right, yeah. So but you, were, you were involved in it, like yeah. just being there, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and we, we felt it was, it was a high-level, uh, tense operation. It was dangerous. It was critical. So, you know, I sort of felt sick in the pit of my stomach because I knew that someone could have got shot. It, yeah, it, it was it was a bad situation. Those Murphy boys weren't going to be taken down easily, and um, we knew that they would they would fight if they were cornered. Um, and I just listened to the whole thing on the radio. I could hear the helicopter over the head. I could hear the different um, call signs calling in from the perimeter. Some were on the outer, some were on the middle, some were inner perimeter. Right. And then, of course, when they did the um, the bust, where they just broke the door down and went in. And I could hear the dogs. They had the police dogs there. I could hear them barking. I could hear people getting chased and people, um, you know, short of breath, panting in in the radio when they were trying to get these guys. So, yeah, it was a really good result when they got them both. Yeah. Yeah, it's just such a – it's a great example of when policing is really just done right Mm. in every regard. It's really looking after the community and that, you know, that's justice there. Yeah. Working so yeah, I, I, um, it was just a really uh, uplifting, you know, part mm, of the book. Even yeah. though it was, you know, after such a horrific crime. Um, another interesting part of um, that chapter, I thought, was the suicide in the car, mm. um, which you attended as general duties. Was it? Yeah, um, but you got to experience. Um, the forensics of the case, just seeing what how they interacted with a case like that. Mm, yeah, yeah. So um, that was the the young fellow that suicided in the combi van. Is that the one you um, you're referring to? I think it, it was in um, in his. It was the one where um, they'd called, and then they'd been found a few hours later, and. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, that was a different, yeah, exactly. Well, so by this stage I'm working in um, foot patrol and... Oh, right, okay, yeah. Yeah, and the the wife was, they were estranged, the husband and wife, and the wife had called the station earlier in the day and said she had concerns for welfare of the husband. It was the middle of summer, it was a really hot um, day and they just didn't have a car crew to get out there Um, and they just didn't do it, they just didn't do the job. Um, And then she rang back later in the day and wanted to know what had been done about it because no one had been there. So mm. they came into the foot patrol. They were looking for someone that would be able to handle a situation delicately um, and avoid a complaint because right. they thought it was going to be a complaint. So they asked if I would do it and I said I would. And and because the car crews were still busy, they still didn't even really have anyone that could do it without, you know, not doing another job. So and was whereabouts was that? Was that? It was at Ambervale, which is okay. um, just outside Campbelltown. Yeah, so that was that at the Campbelltown station where everyone was just oh, flight yeah. chat. Yes, yeah. it was at Campbelltown Police Station. Yeah, and that sorry that earlier I said Macquarie Fields, but it was Campbelltown you were doing general duties, wasn't it? Yeah, and yeah. then you moved to the newer Macquarie Fields building later. later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so I mean, a pretty big job for you to like. That kind of sounds like um, you know, 
a bit of a hospital pass in terms of like terms like <laughs> yeah it was but i think it's get a complaint it know? probably goes back to what i was just saying about having the ability to talk things down uh, i obviously had shown the ability to to sort things out in a delicate way if it was required mm. I, I had that ability to do it so of course we went around there and um, broke into the house and uh pulled the garage door up and he was dead in the car and he'd gassed himself in the car so because we were all pretty horrified at that it was a bad result and mm. um then we, we we knew that we'd have to um tell the wife and um try and explain to her which I did I sat with her later and explained to her that he was he was dead in the car in the garage because um, but by that time she'd actually come around to the house and um she was in the lounge room and I went inside and sat with her and said that um, he he was deceased and I explained to her that he'd been deceased for quite some days. Right. So if we had a, if the police had have come, gone around earlier in the morning, it wouldn't have changed the outcome. She would have heard a bit earlier but it wouldn't have saved his life. So, um, you know, we explained that to her because he was quite badly decomposed. So, yeah, it was good to see the scientific um, come in and do their job and see how they looked after the crime or you call it a crime scene but it's not really a crime scene um, but it's a scene that needs to be investigated mm. fully in case it is a crime scene. Yeah, just just to cover all grounds, yep. yeah. Yeah. Um, it being a pretty horrendous mm. um, scene, did that in any way change your perspective on scientific funnily enough it didn't i mean the smell was unbelievable it it, it, even throughout my career that would have to be one of the worst ones that i've been to because it was middle of summer and he was quite blown up and um his skin had sort of gone into these bubbles and it looks like marble you can sort of see all the veins and everything through it and it was sort of all weird colors like yellow black purple blue Mm. um and he was hideous you know his facial um Features were hideous and uh, he looked really awful and smelt really bad. And the worst part was that we knew that we'd have to get him out, but you couldn't move him because his skin was so tight that it would just explode. Yeah. And I'd never seen anything like that before. And I found it fascinating how the human body decomposes in that regard. And that was probably why I was still interested in scientific because I was looking at in a forensic sense rather than looking at it. Yeah, so yeah. interesting that you go straight there, how you found it interesting that it, about like how a body decomposes rather mm. than, you know, horror. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. but it's weird. It's definitely shows how you had a real calling to that side of the job. Yeah, yeah. It didn't disturb me to be in the presence of death either, which mm. is another unusual thing. You don't really know how you're going to be around dead bodies until you actually are in the situation. And, of course, when I first went to that um, deceased baby on my first day, I was very scared of that whole thing. Um, but the more times I went to the morgue and did postmortems and things, I was actually quite comfortable um, in that scenario. Um, it didn't really disturb me, of course, until much later on when I became overloaded with it, but um, I didn't find it uh, distressing or, you Well, know, yeah, I, that um, is another uh, real moment of growth, I think, uh, or an example of it, uh, when you revisit the morgue, um, when you're now doing, uh, you're helping out with the scientific stuff, mm. um, and uh, you just seem a lot more comfortable, even though it's not a great experience again. You just seem a lot mm. more comfortable than that first time when you went in. They had the 
the baby. And there's obviously the young boy that's at the morgue. Mm. And you, you yeah. just both sort of stand there and have a moment. Yeah. Does yeah. that... Uh, did that kind of continue throughout that sort of, um, as you say, you you weren't super uncomfortable in the presence of a, a dead body, but you had respect for that mm. sort of moment. Yeah, absolutely. I think I I did have that as like an innate um, trait of mine that I had mm. the res- I had respect for it. Uh, so I was able to just have a moment with it and let it sit. Yeah. Rather than being scared or horrified or running away or anything like that, just letting it sit. Yeah, amazing, actually. Mm. Yeah, I like I just the thing that was to me it was respect for the dead. That's what you yeah you had yeah yeah no just super interesting. So yeah, so then going into now that you're learning a little bit more about scientific, mm. um, and uh, always understaffed. Yeah. 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 From day one, I mean, when I did relieve and assist, the reason why they wanted me there was because the guys just couldn't cope and they were exhausted. And, um, I mean, I've never seen anything like it. It was a shock to see those guys working the way they were. I mean, policing's generally a busy time to work in any field, but this was another level. Yeah. And for me to just be able to help with mundane things, even making them a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, they didn't have time to even eat. Mm. Um, they weren't sleeping. I mean, they were getting called out during the well, night. And, so when you when you were on the way back from the morgue and mm. the motorbike accident and you were having a sandwich or something, like yeah. it was that whole mentality of having a sandwich on the run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, I mean, of course, Greg Kelly, my colleague who I was working with, who was just an amazing uh, professional who trained me so well from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, I was so blessed to have someone like him there at that time when I was learning because he had so much patience, but yet he was tough, you know, like he 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 was he had to be tough because if I didn't learn properly, I could stuff up a really serious situation. So he, Yeah, and what you often would work one out as well in that Yeah. Yeah. So it was really important that you had all of the tools necessary. Absolutely. I needed to be trained correctly and, and like you say, you know, we that day was such a busy day that he took me into the Sydney Police Centre. Oh, it wasn't no, it wasn't the Sydney Police Centre at that time. It was the um, we used to call it the old hat factory where the scientific section was. And God, what an eye opener that was! Um, walking around the the unit and seeing the examination tables back to back with all the bloodstained clothing lying there. I mean, we're talking pre DNA, so yeah. there was a lot of cross contamination. And I doubt whether they would have even sterilised those tables back then because there was only blood groupings. You'd get a presumptive test for a blood for blood to start with and then you'd get a, a possible blood grouping if you had enough blood. Right. Um, and that was the best you could expect. So a lot of those um, samples were all just lying around together and in the same room and cross-contamination and that sort of thing um, because it didn't didn't seem to be a problem at that point. Um, but then, you know, after wandering around and looking at all those things and then going to the morgue and seeing the city morgue for the first time, I'd only been in a small country or not so much country because, you know, Campbelltown and Camden were um, sort of classified as being outer suburban. Yeah. But small morgues. Mm. But walking into that city morgue, wow, what an eye-opener that was. Yeah. You know, I'd never seen anything like it. And and um, to just sort of see how that worked and... 
Um, and then to, you know, get outside and Greg said, oh, well, this is a good time just to have our lunch. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. It could turn your stomach, you know, after all of that. Yeah, there's no way you'd be thinking of eating. No. I, I thought that, um, you know, that part of the book was just fantastic though for it. Like it opened my eyes a little bit as to what was so interesting about scientific. Mm, you know, there's, yeah. it, it, is, it is a pretty interesting facet of the job. Yeah, it's, it is fascinating. Mm. And, and being in a place that most people will never see, I mean, the only time you're going to go there is when you're deceased. So it's like being part of something very hidden and uh, very unique. Mm. And that's why I think I also had a, a high level of respect for it because you are privileged to be in the presence of that many people that have lost their lives. You don't know them. They don't know you. And you've you've got a, a role to play and you want to do that to the best of your ability so that if they are trying to find out how or why or what the circumstances is of a certain death, they mm. don't know what that is, you need to have that level of professionalism and do the best job you possibly can. Well, I guess jumping forward a little bit uh, to when you were at Macquarie Fields, mm. um, with the death of the baby at the train station, mm. um, that kind of plays into that whole how important it is the police's involvement in in deaths. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I was a general duties um, car crew when I got called to Macquarie Fields railway station um, because a child, a baby, had been hit by a train. And, you know, my first thought was, oh, this is going to be horrific. It Mm. it couldn't possibly live through that. But, of course, when I got there, um, the story was that that the the mother kept saying that the pram had been sucked into the train because a freight train had gone through the station supposedly very fast. Um, And she said that the the pram had been sucked in by this sort of vortex. Mm. And she she was an overweight lady um, and she said she couldn't reach it before it hit the train. Uh, and then, of course, when it hit the side of the train, it speared it back onto the station and the baby got thrown out of the pram mm. and hit the fence. There was a fence at the back and it hit that and it, it, it suffered some really bad head injuries. But the whole thing didn't really make sense. Um, and then speaking with the husband, he he was very suspicious of it right from the mm. start and that was difficult dealing with him because he wanted answers. Yeah. And I never really got him the answers. Even and though he went to the, you guys for the answers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... The forensic officer at the time was fairly new at the job as well and he was sort of making it up as he went. He didn't have any uh, right. education in physics or anything like that. Does that play into the – well, I mean, that's uh, the nature of scientific at the time too and forensics at the time. Mm. Uh, it seems pretty basic, the technology that they were working with. It was very basic and the training was all on the job and mm. you went into Sydney and did a one-week – uh, crime scene course, which, right. you know, and it was all run by your colleagues that had gone before you that had experience in it. So they, they'd often written the subjects themselves and came and trained you on it. So it was no formal qualifications back mm. then. And at that stage, that particular investigator hadn't done that crime scene course. Um, oh, right. Well, does yeah. that play into the, the understaffing? Is that another? Yeah. 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 And you had to wait your turn and and they only ran the course once a year, so you had to wait. And that's what happened to me later when I actually became part of the staff at Scientific. I didn't do the crime scene course till quite some time after I actually started working there. Wow. I, mean, you can't, I can't imagine being thrown. I mean, you were too when you – all police officers, I think, 
probably are when they're thrown into that to the actual job of general duties mm. um it probably feels like you don't have you know maybe as much training as you probably need to deal with the wide range of stuff you need to deal with yeah but yeah it's just crazy that that sort of job you are just sort of expected to pick up yeah well it's another level you mm. know, and it's really technical and even mastering how to use a camera is not easy um you know if you're not a photographer well yeah that uh, that was something that um stood out to me too you just had to learn basically how to become a f- pretty professional mm. grade photographer yeah in in five minutes flat yeah and um the camera equipment was i mean they used the roller flexes which were the different i think it's 140 mil format it's a different format to the 35 mil um and it was completely different. The photo, the photo was taken um, in a diff- completely different way, and the film had to be processed in a different way. And and I had never even held one of those cameras before. Mm. And as luck had it, um, they brought these thirty five mil Nikon's in, and I got one of those um, brand new pieces of equipment. And they were a lot easier to use. And in my mind, I mean, a lot of the guys absolutely swore by the roller flexes. They loved them because they were. I guess it was such a big learning curve. You don't yeah. really want to move, you know, you don't want to change. Mm. Um, I think that happens in every industry. Once there's a real level of understanding of your tools, which mm. is the camera in that case, when they say, all right, now we're bringing in something new, there's a real apprehension. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, well, yeah, pretty, I like this one. There was guys still using their roller flexes when I left, um, wow. in the, in, you know, in the late 90s um, yeah. that, that loved them and, and they did produce a very beautiful quality photograph um and but you know um i wonder if any of those surely not wonder if any of those nikons still are kicking now um well they were up until a few years ago because a colleague that i worked with who went into crime scene said she had my old kit wow (laughs) um oh that's cool yeah yeah and everyone knew who my kit whose kit it was because when i the kits came in this great big huge steel box which was totally inconvenient if you're walking out to a scene to yeah. carry this massive box down in bushland or you know crawling through holes or wherever you were going and I well, as soon as I got it I identified that and I I went to Kmart I think it was and I bought this soft camera bag and I fitted it all out into the camera bag and um, everyone's jealous of it because I loved it <laughs> they said, yeah well, how'd you get that you know and I just said well I asked for it and I got it <laughs> And I, it was great because I could ca- I could carry my my revolver in the front pocket. <laughs> yeah, I, I, but I, I think it's uh, maybe a little later on. But you talk about how important your kit is too. Yeah, no, no one was to mess with anyone else's. Kit. Oh yeah, you don't touch anyone else's kit. No. And, and of course, I, I I got into a big trouble with Greg Kelly when I first started because he gave me his kit to to practice on and I didn't put the bracket back in it which was the bracket was used to hold the flash on the actual camera body so he of course he got called out that night to a job and he had no bracket so he had to hold the camera in one hand and the flash in the other and oh man when I walked into the office next morning he, he said um, were your ears burning last night <laughs> I said no why and he said well um yeah a few expletives blah 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 um you know you didn't put that bloody bracket back in the kit, so you made my job damn difficult. Yeah. And I never, ever did it again. I was so embarrassed. And yeah, it only needed to happen once. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, of course, if anyone touched my kit, I was the same, you know. Yeah. How dare you keep yeah, well, your mitts off it. That's that 
that culture again though it, it, again though like it's sort of, it's uh, it's still semi friendly you know he mm. you know he was forgiving of that because you were learning yeah sort of, yeah yeah he was yeah, yeah. He, he put humor into it he was having a bit of a laugh but yeah. he said he wasn't laughing at the time when he was at some horrible job trying no, to take photos. Oh, it sounds photos. horrific. Trying to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it must be uh, quite a different scenario now with digital cameras and everything. Oh, it would They'd be, have, yeah. You know, just a tiny little mm. kit presumably. Very different. Yeah. And we had battery packs so you'd have that slung over your shoulder as well because you'd need unlimited battery life because you could be at a scene for five, six, seven, eight hours. Did you use like a variety of lenses too? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we had um, macro lenses and, you know, um, different lenses for faraway work and close-up work and all that sort of thing. So, yeah. It's pretty in-depth, like the camera knowledge you need to, you know, the photography skills you need mm. are pretty full on. Yeah, it was. And, you know, even loading your film properly and um, unloading it properly. Did you ever Greg- have a situation where you loaded film incorrectly? and? I didn't actually. Um, one of my colleagues did a couple of times where it wasn't loaded correctly. So when he took the photo, he only got half a photo on the film. Yeah. And one of the jobs that he'd been to was actually a murder scene. So that was a huge disaster. And um, we were all quite horrified when those photos came back. Oh, man. Uh, but Greg taught me really well. He taught me um, how to load it properly. Um, and I did it exactly the way he showed me. But when you'd also finished, you would leave a, a slight little piece of the film you wouldn't wind it right back into the canister whereas some people would wind them right back into the canister and if you wound it back into the canister you might not realize that that film's already been used and pick it up so they'd do, do it use job. it twice yeah so you'd end up with a, a, a film that already Double. been exposed yeah oh, no. um and you just leave a little little bit of a tongue hanging out and then rip that off rip it so that you knew that it had been used so little things like that that he taught me that were lifesavers because i never ever had a problem with it yeah so important yeah yeah, that's uh, that's really he really mentored you in that regard. He did, yeah, yeah, yeah he d- he really did. Um, so then, so Macfields is a really important part of this part of your life, I think, because that new station opening up with the mm. scientific division, yeah, um, it's almost like you had a premonition you were going to end up there. Yeah, I did, and. Um, you know, when I was working with the Nido driver, uh, I did it a couple of times and we'd always go by the station and pull up there and um, have a little walk around with our torches and just look at it and make sure it was intact because it had been broken into a couple of times. Mm. And Which is not a good sign. No, no. And I knew that the scientific section was going in there and, and I just visualised myself working in that office because I knew what part of the station it was going to be in. Mm. And it was it was weird really. Um, and I and I had no doubt that I was actually going to work there as well. It wasn't even like I was dreaming about something that wasn't going to happen. I knew in my mind that, it, that I was going to work there. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think that at all influenced your um, like your past, towards scientific as well, it having that designated, was that sort of a trigger of like, oh, okay, yeah, that could be where I'm going to end up? Yeah, I suppose it was in my consciousness Mm. because it was actually there, you know, like seeing where it was all going to happen. Mm. So, yeah, I do think that had something to do with it. Yeah. No, it's super interesting. Um, So, yeah, back on the... um, Another interesting thing with scientific, because that's another real theme of these chapters, is like it's just it's always there. Um, when you did um, that scene of the baby 
at the train. Mm. You were, uh, I thought, quite involved in the forensic side of things. Mm. For someone who was in general duties to be involved in that, like where you did the reenactment. Yeah, because by the time we did the reenactment, I was seconded back there to do relieve and assist. So, um, because I'd, I'd sort of done a little bit of relieve and assist, then I went back to foot patrol, and then I went back to relieve and assist, and then I went, then I got transferred to Macquarie Fields. Yeah, and then I went back and did a bit more. Um, and so you were kind of like working yeah. in a bunch of different camps. Yeah, I was, and um, I helped that particular um, forensic investigator to prepare for that reenactment, and of course I was. I played the part of the mother mm. sitting on the station and that's why when I sat there and that freight train came through at exactly the same time of the day at the exact same speed that they had logged on um, the tachometer or whatever you call it because that, that, they had the evidence of that. We went back and found the evidence of how right. fast it was going. The trains have records of how yeah. fast they're going and everything. Yeah. Yep. So the train went through at exactly the same speed and the pram didn't move at all. Mm. It, it didn't even um, rock it from side to side. So it really made me think that there was more to it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there were things that we didn't really probably, we didn't we probably didn't weight the pram down um, enough. There was probably more in the pram. We, I think that that's what came out of the um, coroner's inquest. Well, they, yeah, because did you have to go to court um, yeah. during that? And was that your first experience with um, presenting in court or? Well, I wasn't actually giving evidence for forensics. I was giving evidence as a general duties officer, yeah. as the investigator there on the day. Um, but yet I was privy to the experiment as well. So they did ask me some questions about the experiment, mm. even though I wasn't conducting it, but that I was in the actual experiment. Yeah. Uh, but I realised then when the scientific officer was being questioned about how heavy was the pram and you know, what was in the pram, that I realised that he hadn't actually, well, I knew he hadn't because I hadn't asked the mother exactly what other items were in the pram. Yeah, and in hindsight, do you think, because that seems like a strange thing to ask, you know, it seems pretty innocent, but mm. I guess that's the policing mind yeah. at work. You have to have that level of suspicion always. Yeah. Do you think that influenced decisions you made going forward when you were attending scenes? Definitely. Mm. I learnt a lot from that. Uh, and then later when I did the Diploma of Applied Science and I did physics, um, I just kept thinking about that scene and thinking about how under-resourced that was mm. and and the fact that we weren't trained and we had no idea really what we were doing. We were just making it up. Well, it was the, the scientific guy was making it up as he went. And yeah. um, it just wasn't good enough. It didn't cut it and... Also, the way that he was questioned in the coroner's court, I found to be disturbing because it was very obvious that he hadn't done enough homework on it um, because there was gaps in some of it. So the reenactment wasn't really given any um, kudos because there was too many variables that mm. we hadn't looked into. But in my mind, having sat there when that train went through, there's no way that that pram was sucked into the train. Mm. Um, in fact, we didn't have as we found out later that we didn't have as much weight in the pram as what was in it. Right. Um, which makes me think that it would have been even harder to have sucked it into the yeah. train. Um, but you know, it was just one of those one of those incidents that you go to that never really makes sense. And you never get to the bottom of it. Yeah. And does that sort of continue? Does that stay with you? Does that 
pile on a bit? Yeah, look, you know, it was difficult de- dealing with the um, the father of the child because he was adamant there was more to it and he wanted answers and we couldn't give them to him. And I dealt with him quite a bit. He used to call me and um, because the child ended up having severe head injuries. Mm. So sadly she didn't pass away then, but she passed away about four or five years later. Um, and she was virtually incapacitated in a, in a, when I, I actually went to the house at some stage to follow up on it and she was in a cot. The house was a bit like a makeshift hospital and wow. she was in this cot um, and she'd grown, you know, she was sort of, you know, I don't know how old she was, four, three or four, uh, and she was big and she was um, terribly um, affected by the brain injury. And, yeah, it's terrible. You know, retardation yeah. and unable to talk and move wow. properly and it's just really, really sad. Well, that uh, is another interesting thing for me is how involved um, police officers are and remain to be in these cases that they attend a lot of the time. Well, I I think we're hearing more and more now that um, especially some of these high-profile cases, I mean, look at the the Matthew Levison case where um, the detectives involved became very close to the family mm-hmm. and I think that does happen more and more and, and I think it's really part of the job because when people are in the worst grief that they could possibly be going through and, and they want answers to the death of their loved one or the mis- mis- disappearance of their loved one, they really do have a relationship with the investigator Yeah, um, because you can't help but not feel their pain it's just compassion that you have yeah yeah well one of the um uh just just one of the stories that i found really um important was the cyclist who was killed yeah um was it in camden yeah it was on camden valley way um just just sort of leppington not quite in camden right um but you know i i also think things happen for a reason as well Mm -hmm. and um, I was able to bring a fair level of empathy to that job, like to that incident, to to mm-hmm. to, to help um, both his mate who was um, cycling with him, but also the driver of the car who was absolutely distraught. Well, yeah, I think, but your your involvement in that to me was an enormous amount of growth from um, scenes you'd attended in those first three chapters, especially mm. um, just the way you handled the whole thing. Yeah. You were really accustomed to it now. Yes, I was. And, I was, of course, I was alone because I was coming home from night work and I came across it um, and I could see there was a dead body on the road because I, I knew straight away it, mm. it, it was a dead. And, um, you know, when you walk into a situation like that, you've got people crying, you've got people um, in shock, you know, you've, you've got people that are scared, Um and you've got to calm it all down. You've got to bring the level down. You've got to you've got to start to work out how what's what's your priorities, mm-hmm. you know. And my priority, first of all, was to cover the body because I just felt that was making the distress even worse. So I mean, obviously, first of all, I went and checked to see whether he had a pulse or if he was breathing. That was the first thing I did because his mate said to me he thought he was dead, but he wasn't sure. Yeah. Um, and of course, people don't know if they haven't been amongst death before, and. So that was the first thing I established and when I established that he was in fact dead, I, I went to my car and there was a, a rug in my car that I'd sat on right the way through my high school years and we used it at lunch times to have our lunch and we all wrote our names on it and my friends, when when I finished the last day of school, we wrote they wrote a lot of messages to me on that mm-hmm. rug so it had a lot of sentimental value wow. and it meant, meant a lot to me Yeah, and 
I remember thinking I had to put the rug on him and I, I remember thinking that that I would I'd, – I'd, the, the reason why I'd sat on that rug at school and that it had been in my life was because it was going to cover that man. Wow. And I, I knew I wasn't going to get it back. I mean, it was that was that was where it was going. It was going off with him. Yeah. And um, does that? Yeah. Because it's kind of like the first time we've talked about that feeling of like things are meant to be. Yeah. Um, was that really important, especially going to scientific with dealing with all levels of of death, but also just even the more horrendous ones too? That sort of feeling of. Um, you know, things are as they are. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, why are you involved in certain things that impact on people? Um, I mean, that's what life's all about is your impact, whether it be good, bad or indifferent, is going to make a difference. Mm. So some people are more suited to certain incidents than others and for some reason I was the one driving my car home that day and I was able to handle that and then as it turned out, the first car that I flagged down was the parents of a girl I'd gone to school with. Wow. So it was weird that I had this connection with the blanket and yet the first car that I flagged down was also a connection with my schooling mm. and they knew me and I knew them. So immediately they said, what can we do? And they had a car phone because in those days, you know, having a car phone was pretty big time. <laughs> yeah. And when I, when I looked into the window and I realised who it was, I saw the car phone and I said, could you please call Camden Police and get them to bring a highway car out and, and a car crew? And they did that immediately. And, um, and then, of course, I just um, – the friend who was cycling with his mate, I took him to my car and sat him in the passenger seat and just tried to comfort him the best way I could. Um, and then I went back and dealt with the driver who'd actually run this guy over and it was an accident because the bike rider, they would turn left onto Cannon Valley Way, which is was a 100-kilometre zone mm. from a side street. They'd cycle for some distance and look. When it was clear, they'd do a U-turn. But this particular day, and the guys were older, you know, I think they were in their 70s, this particular guy, he just did the U-turn. He just didn't look. Just sort of force of habit, just yeah. went, didn't think about it. Yeah, yeah. he just uh, felt confident to do the U-turn and he, he did it in the path of a car. And the guy that hit him, he was absolutely hysterical because he thought he was going to go to jail. He said, I've right. killed someone, I'm going to get charged with murder. And I, I was explaining to him, you won't, it's an accident, Um you know, it's very clear what's happened. We've got witnesses, evidence here, you know. It's it's not even a, a situation where we're not sure what happened. We, we His mate that was on the bike with him told yeah, us. Yeah, he was being very honest at the scene too. Yeah. Hey? He was just saying total yeah. accident, yeah. But, you know, that, that car driver, he was crying. He was very upset. And it was very traumatising for him and I'm sure it still is. Yeah. I mean, it probably lives with him to this day. Well, again, you're, that's an important part you play in that whole scenario too, you know, because yeah. that's – uh, one of the biggest moments, if not the biggest, in maybe two or three people's lives that you're dealing with in just yeah. one scenario. And I think it's right what you said before about the growth um, because when the Highway Patrol car, car came with the Highway Patrol officer and um, his first um, issue was that we need to get the road clear and he was just saying at the top of his voice, get that body off the road. We've got to get the body off the road. Well, yeah, okay, so this was something interesting to me. He was obviously detached mm. from uh, that empathy that you still definitely had as a part of your um, makeup in policing. Mm. Do you think you eventually got to that stage of detachment? 
not not like that. Yeah. Um, I I did go through varying degrees of change and different ways of dealing with things. I mean, his way of dealing with it, he didn't really want to see the body. He wanted it to be moved. And, and, he, and the way he was referring to it as well, I guess, yeah. dehumanises. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, in his mind, once that body was moved, it, it, it meant he didn't have to think about it anymore. He could just go back to getting the road clear. Yeah. But the other thing that happened was that the, the ambulance arrived shortly after and um, this is when he was calling out for the body to be moved. And I walked up to the paramedics and said, um, will you take the body? Because I knew that paramedics won't take deceased people. I mean, once they're deceased, they they call the government contractors. Mm. And um, I knew that if a government contractor was called, it was going to be even more distressing for everybody that mm-hmm. was there, especially the friend. And um, I went to the paramedic and I said, would you please take this body? I know you don't, but will you please take the body? Because we've got his best friend just here. And he's hearing all this, he's seeing all of this, and we, need, we really need him to go. We need the body to be moved sooner than later. And it will be more empathetic for him to see his mate going off in an ambulance mm-hmm. than it will be if he sees him get, being, you know, loaded into a, um, a panel van with blacked-out windows. Yeah. And they, they agreed to take the body, which was unheard of. They just didn't do it. So it was nice that they actually could see that there was, uh, a, you know, a reason for changing the rules. They showed empathy there too. Yeah. It's really important in that first responders group of people mm. that they can. Uh, yeah, it's amazing when people can um, take each job for what it is, and yeah, show compassion and empathy for mm. people dependent on the situation. Yeah. Um, and then obviously, you, after it had all been resolved, you saw the man riding his bike. Yeah. So. Um, because I was on general duties, I was, uh, I was on an afternoon shift this particular day and um, I was driving to work one afternoon and I stopped at the lights at Macquarie Fields right near the station and who should pull up beside me is but this, this guy on the bike. Yeah. And um, I looked at him and he looked at me and he smiled. Wow. And it was just a really nice moment. It was really lovely to see him back out on the bike. Like a bit of closure almost. Yeah. Yeah. It was sad in a way because he was on his own. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't have his mate with him anymore But it was good that he'd still got back out there doing what he loved And that's what he kept saying to me at the scene He said if he had to go anyway At least he was he's died doing what he loved Because he said he really loved This guy lived for cycling mm. And so he kept saying that, you know So, yeah I think um, I know I've touched on it before But it just really shows how much a part of the community police are mm you don't just do the job and then you never see them again. Yeah. I mean, yeah. even in that case, you live nearby. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, jumping forward um, to the release of the book and how many people have contacted me since mm. who are mentioned in the book or know someone that's mentioned in the book. Um, you know, even recently I got a messenger message from a lady who said that she had gone to school with a, a boy called Mark and... Um, she wanted to know whether that was the person that was in the Father's Day accident. Right. And um, she described the school and she said he was sort of her first boyfriend, you know, when they were kids. Wow. And it was sad because I had to go back and confirm that it was. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, like... Even then, like you're still a part of these... Yeah. Now in that that timeline of these people's history and their lives, Mm. you're a really important part now in that. Yeah. There's a connection. Yeah. 
And we, you know, we had quite a discussion backwards and forwards. She told me a bit more about her life and um, how, how that had actually shaped her life. Losing him um, at that young age had actually impacted upon her. Yeah. So you don't realise the far-reaching effects of when these accidents happen and when people lose their lives when they're quite young and how many people are actually affected and pe- people that you don't know, unknown people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, and, and you become a really important part in that story for all of them. That's yeah. the crazy thing is you sort of have to traverse mm. that relationship. Um, but in a way it's a real privilege too. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is. Which I think you were always um, acknowledged mm. to. Yeah. And, you know, you remember everyone. You know, yeah. any, any cop that you talk to will say the same, that, that you don't ever go to one of these incidents that you forget because the impact is far-reaching and it's, it's quite indelible on your, on your own life. And there are often triggers later on, little things that will come up that will remind mm. you of that particular incident. Yeah. And it'll sort of put put you back in time and put you back in the scene or or however you were involved. And I guess anniversaries and stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're coming up to Father's Day and I was thinking about it. There was an advertisement for something on about Father's Day. Um and even I think it was yesterday and I thought for a minute I thought, Oh, um, you know, family get together and then I thought, Oh, no, it's not really a happy day for me. Mm. And um you just reflect back on how sad it is. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess another, it's just another aspect of um, things police carry with them. Mm. Um, they don't, their their lives are now just intrinsically connected mm. by dates or by places with yeah. these people that you probably, you don't really even know, but you just are so, mm. yeah, connected to them. Yeah. Yeah, you are. You you do connect with people. And even afterwards, you know, when I was on my book tour, I had another email last week from someone who said that I'd uh, had a, a, a very positive impact on his mother because I spoke to her at an event that I was at and she had opened up to me about her life and some difficulties that she'd experienced. And I opened up to her about something similar and she's since passed away and the son, and she passed away a few years ago, but the son sent me an email last week saying that he wanted to say thank you for um, supporting and assisting his mum during that time and it meant a lot. Yeah. I mean, you don't I, – I, I didn't know anything about that. Um, so without you even being aware, you're part of people's lives in different ways. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing, the reach. Mm. Yeah. Um, so on, on uh, the other side of the way that you become – involved in people's lives uh, is the incident where you went uh, to a house and there was a domestic violence situation. Mm. Um, how prepared are you as a police officer to deal with like pure actual violence and aggression directed towards you? Well, as time goes on, you become wide to it. So you're on high alert all the time. So mm. your adrenaline's pumping and, and you're not aware of it. I didn't I didn't know at the time that I was on this high alert and that my adrenaline was pumping right. like that. Well, I, I actually, just going back a bit too, that when um, you're in the car with Greg and the motorbike accident mm. took place and you were like first on the scene just through coincidence. Yeah. Um, and the way, even though there was a real um, aura of you were both exhausted. mm 
you just both sprung into action. Yeah. Is that that same, like it's always running just in the background? You don't realise that adrenaline yeah. is always ready to go. It's it's immediate. Yeah. Yeah, it, it happens. It's the fight, flight, freeze. It happens before you actually think about it. So your body actually reacts to the situation before you have time to think about what you're going to do. Right. So you just go straight into the police mode and that's why police that have had a long career, even a short career, it doesn't matter, but um, even more so if their career has been very, very lengthy, um, their brain is really wired to that. Mm. So when they leave the police, they find it very, very difficult to unwind and come down from it. So they're wired all the time and they're seeing right. things. Um, they hear a loud noise in the supermarket or you know, a car backfiring. They'll immediately go into police mode and look to see if there's someone with a gun. Or um, you, can't, you can't work out why. You think, yeah. oh, that was a total overreaction, but it's actually programmed. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's programmed into you. So even at that early stage when I'd been in the police, it, I think it was my second year, and I went to that domestic violence situation, I was already heightened before I got there. Right. Because you know that you're going to go into something that's going to be volatile. Mm-hmm. And, of course, when I got there and I tried to break up the domestic situation, the family turned on me. Yeah. And I wasn't expecting that. So then I had another situation that changed immediately. And the worst part about that was when the female started to attack me and verbally and then physically, my partner just froze. So he mm. went into freeze and he was only a very junior um, probationary constable and he, he just didn't do anything. Right. So so the the different ways of reacting you said just, just earlier was uh, – Fight, flight, or freeze. Fight, flight, or freeze. Right. And did what? Um, looking back, what was your immediate? Well, I was in. I was in the fight. But when you first started as a probationary constable, what do you think your first um, um, tendency was for those out of those three? I think I was more in the fight. Yeah. Because I was in volatile situations from day one. Yeah. Um, and. I saw, I mean, my buddy that was training me, I just saw how dangerous these situations could escalate in, in minutes, how quickly they could yeah. change. And kind of, again, your your buddy early on seemed pretty good in mm. showing you what was required. Yeah. 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 But, you know, when you actually get physically attacked, yeah, um, people do act in different ways. And, you know, my, my partner on that day just froze and I couldn't believe it. To this day, I still can't believe it. I understand it now. I understand that that was his natural response, but um, I could have been killed. And Absolutely. I yeah. needed him to help me and he just didn't. And luckily I was able to get the handcuffs on that woman and and um, secure her and and um, get her off me. But by the time I'd managed to do that, you know, she'd injured me. And uh, then I had the rest of the family coming at me. So, How did the... Um Injuries affect your overall well-being too. When you're carrying an injury from a job, well, I just ignored it. I just I I I went to um, the emergency after work. I went back to work and keep work kept working. Um, I had bruising to my ribs and tissue trauma, and I believe that I had a broken collarbone actually because I was never diagnosed with that. because it was an X-ray, but many years later I had an X-ray, and um, the woman that did the X-ray said to me, "Oh, you've had a broken collarbone," and um, I went, "Hmm." So I never got any treatment for it, and I went back to work the next day. Like wow. I just soldiered on, and potentially into more violent situations yeah. where you had to really, yeah, yeah. 
It's just, uh, I don't know if many people are, because obviously you're not a violent person either, so mm. you're not accustomed to fighting people. Yeah. Um, but I guess just the way you're, um, just what's expected of you in the police gets you uh, accustomed to that sort of. Well, you have to control them. What yeah. I, what I was doing was controlling the situation. So getting her under control was my main aim. So getting her on the ground and secured and handcuffs on. But the trouble was I got one cuff on her and if she had have broken loose, she would have been able to swing that round like a weapon. Yeah. So when I got one cuff on her and I was struggling to get the other one on her, that's when I was screaming at my partner to come and help and he just didn't. So thank God I was able to overpower her and get it on, get the cuff, cuff on her other arm. Do you think there's adequate preparation for, like in the academy, this is what you're going to have to do? I think they try and show you all this officer survival and, and methods and ways of, of, you know, controlling people, which are all very technical, mm-hmm. but you don't actually get to do it until you're in the scenario. Yeah, and you don't know how, like, like just, I was just thinking about myself. I'm like, I don't know mm. how I would react. I mean, you'd hope that you go into the fight and you just, um, you do your job, but it, you really don't in, encounter that situation outside of that kind of work. No, you don't. You don't. You know, you're not walking down the street usually, and you have to defend mm. yourself, that sort of thing. So, until you're presented with yeah. the situation, I, I think for me, luckily, I mean, I had a brother, and we used to play wrestles and all sorts of stuff, and it was we could be a bit argy bargy, and mm. I, you know, was out on the property, and I the had horses, kids, and yeah. Yeah, and it was tough work and it was hard work and dirty work sometimes. And so I was sort of used to, to doing what I had to do. And I could also hold my my own with him if we were having a bit of a wrestle. Right. Uh, play, you're like nothing, nothing serious or anything like that. It was just all playing around. But mm. I could still hold my own because it was a competition. So I think that sort of prepared me in a stupid way, really. It prepared yeah. me to be able to sort of handle myself. Yeah, because it's so important. Like you absolutely need to go into that mode. Otherwise, mm. people, get, as you say, you could have been killed. If you didn't mm. handle yourself so well in that situation, um, it's a really volatile Oh, touch scenario. and go. Yeah. And, of course, I, I, I manhandled that um, prisoner back to the car, but we had a, a sedan, so I couldn't even leave her because she was in the back seat. So mm. I had to get the partner. I said just I just screamed at him to sit with her mm. just to stop her from getting back out because then she would have gotten away with the cuffs on. And the rest of the family were coming down the front yard at me and I just grabbed the baton and started swinging it around my head and then they just retreated. But, um, I, Yeah, so like I, I, I see that, you know, in my mind, that situation. I'm like, geez, that's lucky like, that you, you know, <laughs> it was. sprung into action like that. It was, yeah. Because if both of you had have done that, mm. but yeah, again, I guess you just don't know until you're in that situation how you're going to respond, which is the case yeah. with him. Yeah, and again... Shooting. We were, we were under-resourced. We should have never have been driving a sedan. Yeah. There just wasn't enough trucks um, to go around. I don't know where the truck was and why we didn't have a cage truck, but we didn't. Mm-hmm. And we were sent out to do that job in a sedan, which just is just not good enough. And it's it's endangering your own lives because of lack of equipment. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you think like one of the first things that goes on when you get called to a job like that is like, well, potentially we're going to have to make an arrest mm. and the sedan is not suitable for that Mm, yeah no no so yeah yeah, um it's definitely something that puts a lot of pressure on police Mm. they're at the mercy of the system that they work for yeah yeah 
Um, the way you finish this group of chapters is, um, is the, it's the introduction of how you've been coping with all this stress. Aside mm. from the point you made about how you were having debriefs with other police, mm. uh, this is one of the sort of earlier mentions you put in about um, how you're coping with the stress at work every day, basically, mm. which is you having the one drink or the one cigarette mm. um, because a lot of times you were sort of returning home alone yeah, and that just was a good way of sort of um, de-stressing. Yeah, in my mind I thought it was. I mean, mm. I, I realise now when I got into my car after my shift, I was literally shaky. My yeah, adrenaline, it full was... Full of adrenaline. It was not from, ner- like, from what I can think of was I was nervous or from my nerves or anything, nerves, although it was obviously my nervous system. Mm. It was from adrenaline and I just didn't know how to turn it off. So lighting up a cigarette and just dragging on that cigarette, it distracted me. Mm-hmm. So it was a like a calming effect, and they say that about smoking. A lot of people take it up because they do it for stress relief. Um, and I, I never liked the the taste of cigarette or the smell of it. And I've never been a smoker, but to actually start using a cigarette to try and calm yourself down um, was a bit of a shock. It's interesting, actually, that you uh, and humans have that real thing where they just. Um even if they've never been um, interested in something before, they have a pull towards coping mechanisms like that. Mm. Um, you know, you said you, you were never interested in smoking and then all of a sudden you just start slowly but surely introducing a cigarette as a coping mechanism. It's really strange how the mm-hmm. human mind just... Um, gravitates towards that sort of thing. Yeah, and it's the same with, you know, gambling and addictions, mm-hmm. all, all sorts of addictions. It, it, it's a release of that just to stop that whatever that rumination is, that, that thing that's going around and around in your mind or even if you, unbeknownst to you, something that's playing on your mind. But that feeling of having that adrenaline pumping all the time, you just feel a bit uneasy. You just don't feel quite balanced. There's something not quite right, mm. but you can't put your finger on it. Well, I guess too, like uh, the influence of the cigarettes – and the alcohol, it would have an effect on your nervous system. Yeah, well, certainly, of course, you know, when you have a, a, a drink of alcohol, it does calm you. It mm. does bring it down. And that's the problem with it because people use it because it makes them feel temporarily better. But then in the long term, it's, um, it's such a bad way mm. to um, deal with your stress because uh, it's actually a depressant. So it makes you more depressed and... Then there's the, you know, the hangover. So the next morning if you've had too much, you feel, um, you just feel quite dull and um, you feel sick and a bit nauseous and it then starts to make you feel anxious. So you develop anxiety. Well, and it's like I a guess vicious cycle. The, um, the reason you had the alcohol in the first place, it's still there in the morning. Yeah. When you, you wake up the next day. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I just I thought it was really interesting that that get, is is starting to play a, a part now in your career. Yeah, yeah, and it's sort of insidious the way it creeps in mm-hmm. because at first it's just a little bit here and there, and then it's a bit more. And um, I mean, one of the saviors that I always believe helped me in a, in a lot of ways was with the alcohol was that when I was transferred into scientific, 
and I was on call um, for, you know, seven days, I couldn't drink because yeah. I'm, I was going to get called out so I couldn't have alcohol. And it saved me really because it meant that I was able to have these periods of time where there was no alcohol in my system and there was no opportunity to drink. Yeah. Um, I think if there was opportunity to drink all the time, I might have, indu- in, you know, induced more alcohol than I did. So um, the scientific police were often, um, n- n- you know, uh, sort of saved a little bit in that regard that they, they just couldn't be under the influence of alcohol when they had to be on call. Mm. You did say, though, how there was a little bit of a blind eye that was turned to people having one or two on the job. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that was the environment that I went into um, when I first started in policing because there was the Wednesday night cook-up and traditionally mm-hmm. you drank alcohol at that last night on night work and there was a blind eye. Um, there was even a, a vending machine with beer in it uh, in the wow. station. Yeah, wow. Um, it was supposed to be for soft drinks. Uh-huh. <laughs> but there was one uh, line that had beer in it. Right. So you could just go and um, get it from the vending machine if you wanted it. And there was always alcohol available. Um, I remember going to a pub once um, when we were on night work to actually pick up a carton of beer and a carton of some sort of horrible cask wine um, because it was offered. It was actually offered to the police. Mm-hmm. And the publicans loved the police coming in to grab it because it meant that the police were doing a bit of a round there. Yeah, as a presence. Yep, checking mm-hmm. in on it. So that that was most definitely looked upon as being okay. Um, and then as, as time went on, it was looked at as, upon as being not okay. But by that stage, a lot of police had become problematic drinkers or alcoholics mm-hmm. and then they were penalised for something that had been created by their work environment, which right. I felt was very wrong. Yeah, super wrong. Yeah. Because I think there's a, a real feeling of, um, uh, you know, there's a culture of if it gets the job done, then it's okay to a certain extent. Mm. So that whole turning the blind eye, they're like, well, you know, they're getting the job done, so if that's giving, if that's helping them, then all good. But yeah. then once it gets to a stage where people are really having problems with these coping mechanisms that have been developing for years and in mm. some ways encouraged, mm. um, yeah, then it turns on its head. That they're, they're no longer supportive of that. Yeah, yeah, and it's seen yeah. as a real um, defect. Yeah, and during the Ryan years after the Wood Royal Commission, we lost a lot of good police. Mm. And um, it was very sad because by that stage the drinking had become a problem and instead of being offered assistance, they were just penalised. Which and is terrible. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was very, very badly handled mm-hmm. and it's still not handled well. When there are police that become problematic with their drinking, uh, it's still not handled well. They st- still, on the whole, management does not understand that you've got to look at the problem why, for the reason why the person's drinking, not looking at the drink- drinking as being the problem. So once you can get to the issue um, of, of why they feel a need to actually use alcohol to numb themselves out and mm-hmm. to deal with their distress, then you can start moving forward and working on how to help the person become sober and get back on with their life. Absolutely. Mm. That really, um, oh, and obviously you're involved in that sort of area of policing now a little bit. Mm. Um, but yeah, there really seems like there needs to be a huge upheaval of the system they have for dealing with people, oh, just helping people deal with the the pressure that policing puts on you. 
Yeah, well, there's a whole body of work that needs to be done because really from the first week of stepping into a station as a a young constable, there needs to be uh, resources available to them Mm -hmm. on an ongoing basis to assist with their mental health. and That aren't a beer in the vending machine. Yes, yeah. And, you know, on one hand, the debriefings that we did was – the only thing that we had to support each other because we helped each other through that and the sense of community was a good side of that but the actual alcohol in the mix wasn't so but again i you know my impression is the police weren't really um pushing that community feel that was something mm. you guys just did as a way of coping yeah outside of the police but there was even a bit of a sense that um with that change of the promotional system um, it actually was working against that feeling of community amongst police officers. Yeah, it absolutely was. Mm. Yeah, it, it very much changed it. And, of course, then when the Wood Royal Commission came in and drinking was banned and um, it became a total different scenario, they stopped going to have the debriefs at the pub and even if it was off duty, everyone just stopped doing it because there was a sense of distrust right? Um, about who was watching who and, you know, it just people started to become more insulated rather yeah. than um, debriefing with their colleagues and distrusting of others. Mm. And it and it did cause a lot of damage and it still has. Yeah, that's terrible. Um, the, the interesting, uh, I'm just remembering here, that when you were having the cigarette, is this the story when you threw it out the window and it went back <laughs> yeah. in the back? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I to even think to myself that I would throw a cigarette out the window, bloody hell, like... You know, I, it hadn't even entered my mind that I would cause a fire. Yeah. Um, and what I had done actually was sort of stub it out in the ashtray, but I didn't want to leave the actual bud in the ashtray because it stunk. So it was sort of semi put out in my mind, but I threw it out and, of course, it blew back in and it landed on the, the vinyl mat in the back of my car and it started burning a hole. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I like couldn't believe it. like a little subtle it. message from above. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was better off if uh, it burnt a hole in my car than if it went outside and caused a fire out there. So yeah, but it was I like a little, lesson. almost like a little warning, like yeah, you know, it could have started a fire. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So because you you pretty much stopped the cigarettes pretty quickly. That, um, I didn't do yeah. it again after that. Yeah. It was a message. It was a message. Don't do it. Yeah, which it was, is pretty uh, pretty lucky, I guess, in the yeah. grand scheme. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my life was in enough turmoil as it was mm. without bringing anything else into the mix. Absolutely, absolutely. But it is it is definitely interesting that um, those things have now started to creep in to your life. Yeah, absolutely, definitely. It's very interesting that my my coping mechanisms were clearly starting to be things that were not helpful, but I had Mm -hmm. no other understanding about what ways I could calm myself or help myself. Absolutely, yeah. So the chapter finishes, you get the call, you're going to scientific. Yeah. How does that feel? I was just so excited. Yeah. I really was so excited. I was, it was daunting. Um, I was scared because I, I, I knew there was all of these different things I had to master and it seemed insurmountable, the amount of things that I'd, I'd need to know. Mm. But at the same time, extremely exciting because I was looking at it as a career move and because as it turned out, it was a career move and I stuck with it right the way through the rest of my career for another 15 years But um, and I loved it. But uh, 
yeah, it was it was a real moment, and um, I was pretty exciting about how my career was going to unfold. Yeah, well, that so that basically is going to take us into the next episode, mm-hmm. um, which is going to be super interesting to talk to you about um, what did unfold in that totally new aspect of your career. Yeah, um, it's like a whole. It, it is totally life changing, and as you say, career move. It, it definitely yeah had a huge impact on your. Um, and your life going forward. Um, so the, I think again uh, next next time mm. uh, we'll do four chapters again, which will be scientific, um, six bodies in seven days, uh, cut by a knife, hung by a noose, and Bill and Ben. Yeah. Um, I think they will fit quite nicely together. Yeah. Um, just want to say thank you again for sitting and chatting with me. I really appreciate you sharing your story. Your stories and being so honest and open. It's just, um, I feel really fortunate to be able to chat to you about all this stuff. Oh, thanks, Rob. It's um, it's also equally as um, great for me to be able to talk about this with someone that has a bit of an idea about how it's unfolded over the years, but to really get into the nitty-gritty. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that the readers, they want to know more about what went on behind the scenes because you can only put so much in the story, in the book. Mm. And there is so much more to this. And as we get through into the next few chapters, it will ramp up. I mean, it'll really Absolutely. ramp up. I mean, this yeah. is this is a, a fairly easy level um, compared to how my life changes <laughs> yeah. once I really do, you know, immerse myself in the forensic yeah, field. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost chilling, like, talking about a period of your life um, as if it's happening right now almost. mm but then being able to look, I mean, in the case of your book, it's you've literally written it out and you can see up in front what's to come. Yeah. You know, and that's, uh, yeah, it's it's pretty amazing uh, just how these things happen in your life and how they change the course of your life. And Yeah, and the timing as well. Like now I've learned so much as a person and I've developed so much and I see things differently now and I think that's why it's really fascinating Mm. to look back at what my life was back then and how it was developing but also look at what I know now and and I can understand how these things developed the way they did because we're a lot more knowledgeable now about mental health and about Mm -hmm. all sorts of things and forensic science developed into such a big um, media interest I mean people love to know more about it and well there's all yeah. those all the crime scene shows yeah. and things yeah, yeah it became you know almost sexy you know everybody wanted yeah. to know all about it and the shows with the female um forensic investigators turning up with their high heels and their lipstick <laughs> yeah. on and they got their, ha- <laughs> got their hair out and yeah yeah everything. it was anything but yeah and it just used to make me laugh that anyone could possibly portray that that role like that but mm. yeah so i think the timing's great and it's it's lovely to go over this now at this point and um just delve into it a little bit further. Yeah, there's just so many lessons and mm. I, I'm just, yeah, I'm really appreciating it. Uh, also, just again, another shout out. We hugely appreciate everyone who listened to the first episode and uh, we also appreciate your feedback. So um, anything you guys want to hear more about or want us to specifically touch on, let us know and we'll get yeah, into it. Yeah, that's... Um it's interesting the comments we've had about how it's touched people's lives and how it's actually helping people what we're talking about now. Mm. And I love that. Absolutely love that. So keep the questions coming and keep the comments and the feedback coming. We just love hearing it and 
and being part of your lives. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, everybody. Until next time. Thanks, Rob. <laughs>